coming up. In honor of the Martin Luther King holiday Monday, WAMC presents a special encore power of words, Martin Luther King Jr.'s I Have a Dream speech. Former State Controller H. Carl McCall will deliver the speech to an audience at WAMC's Lyndon Norris Auditorium, followed by analysis with WAMC's Alan Shartalk. Next, special power of words, Martin Luther King Jr.'s I Have a Dream speech. Words are powerful. They cause fear, confusion, and anger, or they can create shared understanding. But when words are delivered by a powerful political leader, their impact can inspire us to great action. And it is to those words that we turn now, in the power of words. not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. This is the meaning of our liberty and our creed, why men and women and children of every race and every faith can join in celebration across this magnificent mall, and why a man whose father less than 60 years ago might not have been served at a local restaurant, can now stand before you to take a most sacred oath. Hi, this is Alan Chartok, live from the Lyndon Norris Auditorium in the WAMC Performing Arts Studio. Welcome to a very special Power of Words, our year-long series of programs that follow American history through some of the most memorable and inspiring political speeches of our times. Our series continues today with one, if not the most recognizable speeches of all time, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s I Have a Dream speech, delivered on August 28th, 1963 at the Lincoln Memorial in Washington, D.C. I'm honored to introduce two distinguished guests who will be joining us today. First here with us to deliver the I Have a Dream speech and to participate in our discussion is Carl McCall, a member of the SUNY Board of Trustees, a member of the Council on Foreign Relations, former New York State Controller, former three-term senator, UN ambassador, commissioner of the Port Authority of New York and New Jersey, and a commissioner of the New York State Division of Human Rights. Mr. McCall has been a passionate advocate for public education, serving as president of the New York City Board of Education from 1990. 1991-1993. He presently serves as the chairman of the Public Higher Education Conference Board, a coalition of 14 member organizations which support a strong and vibrant public higher education system in New York State. Mr. McCall also serves on the board of New Plan Reality Corporation, the Ariel Mutual Fund, and Tyco International. Mr. McCall was educated at Dartmouth College and over at Newton Theological Seminary. He is recipient of nine honorary degrees, Welcome, H. Carl McCall. <laughs> Joining us today to set the scene and contextualize the speech is Dr. J.W. Wiley. Dr. Wiley currently has a joint appointment as director of the Center for Diversity, Pluralism, and Inclusion at the State University of New York, Plattsburgh, and a lecturer in philosophy and interdisciplinary studies. Dr. Wiley completed his doctorate in Educational Leadership and Policy Studies from the University of Vermont in Burlington. Previously, Dr. Wiley also served as Assistant Dean of Academic Affairs, Founder and Director of the
the Claremont Graduate University CGU Diversity Office, Director of the CGU Ronald E. McNair Post-Baccalaureate Scholars Program, Founder and Director of the CGU Minority Mentor Program, CGU's Special Assistant for Diversity, a position created for him, Chair of the CGU Diversity Task Force, and Director of Recruitment. In 1996, Dr. Wiley was co-author and co-coordinator of the 8th Annual National Black Graduate Student Conference hosted by Claremont Graduate University, which brought over 500 black students to CGU's campus. Dr. Wiley's lectures and keynotes at many colleges and universities and is enjoying success as a consultant with his company, Examining Diversity, with a client list that includes University of California San Francisco Medical Center, Wyeth Pharmaceuticals, Princeton's Junior Scholars Institute, Norwich University in Vermont, the New York State Nursing Association, Excelsior College, and Pace University of New York, just to name a few. Dr. Wiley also has a blog on the Plattsburgh Press Republican newspaper's website titled Wiley Wandering, where he creates conversations about diversity and social justice. In December 2009, Dr. Wiley received the inaugural John Brown Coming Home Award for Raising Consciousness and Promoting Civility in the North Country of New York. Welcome, Dr. Wiley. So I guess what we have to do first is set the scene. And Dr. Wiley, perhaps you can start us off by telling us a little bit about how this all came about. Well, it came about in an array of ways. I'm going to take a different approach to telling you how it came about and make sure I emphasize a character that a lot of us don't know. The speech came about through the efforts of A. Philip Randolph and Bayard Rustin as the architects of the speech. And it was necessary because of the political climate we had at the time. Black people had been disenfranchised since over 100 years, basically, when the emancipation took place. We needed to have something like voting rights and civil rights acts to pass again 100 years later, because the first time those types of things went down, it didn't work. So Bayard Rustin, a gay man, and I'm going to emphasize that throughout this talk, who most of us don't know. How many of you know who Bayard Rustin is? So only a few, and everybody should know who this, who this gentleman is. We'll cover that later. But Bayard Rustin and A. Philip Randolph combined to put together this event, which originally was going to happen in 1941 in response to Roosevelt's inability to engage a fair practice of bringing diverse soldiers in, I'll put it that way. So it didn't happen because Roosevelt passed the bill. So later, because of all the tension with civil rights, these two gentlemen got with Dr. King and put forward the program to make it happen in 1963. Wow. And so what were the expectations when everybody got up there? Well, first off, Kennedy was a little anxious. President Kennedy was a little anxious because the bill was already in the mix, so to speak. And he was a little anxious about the fact that if they didn't have the turnout, it could cause some serious problems. Obviously, 250,000 people were in the mall, so it turned out to garner the energy that it had. But the expectation was that it would further push the initiative to, to get the Civil Rights Act passed, which passed in 64, and the Voting Rights Act, which passed in 65. So it turned out to be quite a success, though it was quite flawed in some ways. Why was it flawed? Well, it's a march on Washington for jobs and freedom. How do you define freedom? That's a big part of it. There were no women voices other than Josephine Baker, who was able to speak that day, but Dorothy Height was there, president of the National Council for Negro Women. She didn't have a voice. There were a lot of people that didn't have a voice that day. So while it was great that it was the March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom, you could really 
call it, the March on Washington for Jobs and Racial Equality, because it really didn't cover freedom in a broad context. It covered race. One of the reasons that a lot of people were afraid of Dr. King is that his message was to everybody. It wasn't only to black people in terms of mobilizing the poor, mobilizing a lot of people together. So how did that manifest itself in the speech? Well, I may be very unpopular in this conversation today because uh, when I look at the speech, and it's a brilliant speech, and his oratorical skills were unbelievable, but I don't think it manifested itself well in the speech. I mean, obviously, uh, and anachronistically, this is probably a problem. Uh, what I'm doing here, because I'm unpacking it with a current day sensibility. But if you look at the language, and we'll hear uh, Carl do his thing, and we'll all be able to hear it, so maybe this is good what I'm saying now. But if you listen to it carefully, he had a lot of opportunities to engage this a little more progressively, the way that John Stuart Mill did with the subjection of women, or Du Bois did with his article, The Damnation of Women, hundreds years ago. Um, he didn't have to say things like black men and white men. Uh, and constantly make these, these references. In his speech, he refers to America as her. You don't refer to America as her without consciously doing it. So he could consciously refer to America in a gendered way, but all of his speech refers to, or the majority of his speech refers to the plight of black people as black men, not black people. And if you really think about that, that's a problem. Now, a lot of people will dismiss it as if it's not a problem, but it is, because it continues to keep men in the center of things. You know, it's just like our use of the term girl, our use of, uh, you'll see a woman leaving five women and say, I'll see you guys later. We keep men in the center. Dr. King, as progressive as he was, he wasn't as progressive as he could have been. Carl McCall, ambassador, senator, you are one of the most successful politicians in our state in the history of our state. So, so tell me um, what he meant to you. Well, he meant a lot to me, but to all people. What I think is most interesting about the speech is that I thought that there was a message for different constituencies. And I think the speech was balanced in that it did just that. First of all, there had to be a message to the people who were involved in the struggle. They needed to be encouraged and motivated to continue to do that, and he spoke to them. But he also spoke to the people who were very skeptical and were very concerned about this communist, about this rabble rasa, about this man who was, who'd been to jail and, and who was uh, leading marches and people thought that this uh, man was really promoting racial division. So he had to speak to those people and he had to be very clear in terms of reassuring them. And I think as you hear the speech, you'll see ways in which he did that. The other challenge he had, the constituency he had to speak to, was to those people who felt that he was too moderate. <laughs> he didn't go far enough. Those people who thought that this nonviolence thing is, is something that, why should we be nonviolent when they aren't? <laughs> so he had to really, really address that. Uh, let me just say a personal thing, and I, I want to pick up on what the professor said about the people behind this, and particularly Bayard Rustin. Uh, personal thing. In 1964, I had just finished college and I just come to Brooklyn, New York as a community organizer. That's not a bad thing to be these days, as you know. So I, I was a community organizer. And since I was out there to organize a community, I got a call from Bayard Rustin, who said, I want you to get the churches in Brooklyn involved and to come and participate in, in this march. 
And that was my job. As a result of that, and people are surprised when they hear this, I was not in Washington. I didn't hear the speech because my job was to send busloads of people from churches in Brooklyn to Washington. And my job was to make sure they all got on the buses and got to Washington. And my job was to be there when they all came back to make sure that they could get home. We had uh, carpools to take elderly citizens home after they got off the bus, et cetera. But I, I just want to pay tribute, as, as you have, Professor, to Bayard Rustin, who was the organizer of this, who reached out to me and other community organizers and put together this outpouring, which was unprecedented in terms of, of the turnout. What did it mean to you as a black man, the speech, as you came yeah. to appreciate it? Well, what it meant to me was that this was a person who was really in the spotlight, that there were such high expectations. As I said, there were people who were in the struggle and needed some reassurance about why they should be in the struggle. Why should they be sacrificing themselves? Why should people in Boston and New York worry about what's happening in the South? Because you know, then we thought we were in pretty good shape. So why should we worry about our brothers and sisters who, in the South who were facing a, a different kind of, uh, of racism and discrimination? But again, it, it meant to me that, that this was somebody who was able to address those people and their concerns, but at the same time to provide the reassurances to white people who really wondered what this was all about and what it meant for them. And I think as you hear the speech, he, I think, did engage them. He could have gone a lot further. One thing, you know, the speech only was about 12 minutes long. I mean, there were a whole lot of people who spoke that day, and you're right about people who didn't speak, but there are a lot of speeches. But I think there was a note there in terms of a reassurance to white folks that we're all in this together, and this is what he said. And I think that was a very important message to me about the need to not separate yourself completely, even from the people that you saw as being against you. And for me, politically, in terms of my career, my involvement in politics, this is something that I've always remembered and I've always felt motivated to do that because of what I heard from Dr. King. Professor Wiley? Well, yeah, and uh, let me make sure that I go on record here. I wouldn't be sitting here if not for Dr. King. So, you know, he's one of my distant mentors and uh, a lot of love for him as an individual and him as one of our leaders, you know, an amazing person. But my nature is to challenge uh, and to try to strip things back. And also to give you some insights about some things you don't know, like for example, another big piece of this was the passing of the torch. The night before, W.B. Du Bois had just died in Ghana. And that telegram was handed, and that is controversial, either to Roy Wilkins or Ossie Davis. But one of those two read to the congregation before Dr. King's speech that W.B. Du Bois had died. So that's a pretty major piece too, you know, in all of this. But uh, I couldn't go without challenging the fact that as amazing as the speech was, and it was amazing, the fact that the speech is named the March on Washington for, then I have a dream speech, but March on Washington for jobs and freedom, and freedom has not really been defined the way that it, it could have been. Dr. King's vision was was to make the world a better place for everyone, but too many people were not at the table or were voiceless that day, and it did change the dynamic. Carl McCall, do you agree with that? I, I agree with it, and, and I think it represents where Dr. King was at that time. He came out of the black Baptist church, 
which was a place that uh, where women were not prominent. In spite of his mother, who was a tremendous uh, mentor and supporter of his, and, and his wife, who was incredible while she was his wife and more incredible as his widow, I just don't think this was where he was at that time. But I think over time, I think he progressed. And I think at a, if he had done this in a later time, I think we would have heard more. There's, there's no question that he did not take advantage of an opportunity to address some issues and to include voices who should have been included. It seems to me that we have to sort of contextualize the time that this was happening also. We can't, but if you read his letter from a Birmingham jail, which he wrote four months before that, four to five months before that, uh, this is a quote from it. We will have to repent in this generation, not merely for the hateful words and actions of the bad people, but for the appalling silence of the good people. I mean, his letter from a Birmingham jail is an amazing correspondence that he wrote. And he covers a lot of territory in that, calling people out on the hypocrisy, talking about leadership, talking about vision. And so, yes, I mentioned it earlier, we can't lose sight of the fact that it was a different time. There's no doubt about that. But I think he was trying to answer to quite a few masters at the time. And if I had been in his shoes, I probably would have done the exact same thing. It was a tough time. But the fact that he was a race man and transitioned, as you're saying, Carl, transitioned over his career towards a man who also started to engage socioeconomic class through his efforts to engage labor. He was shifting. He was moving just like Malcolm was moving from being what some people would call a hate monger. I didn't see him that way. But Malcolm was softening his position. Martin was hardening his position, you could say, especially to those who wanted to see Martin only engage race. Some people say Martin was killed because he started to move too far away from his original agenda. Well, that's true. As you know, I think the crowning moment in his life was his speech at the Riverside Church in New York when he took on the whole issue of the Vietnam War. Mm -hmm. And you should have seen the editorials the next day in the New York Times and the Washington Post saying, Dr. King, wait a minute, that's not your, uh, that's not your platform. You're supposed to be a race man. You're right. supposed to be talking about racial opportunity. Why are you getting involved in, in, in the war and raising questions about foreign policy? So, you know, he, he, he did move from one position to another, and it was difficult doing so. And boy, I guess, you know, all this says to me, it's really too bad we lost him. Because just think of the other things that he might have been engaged in, and he never had time to do that. But as he saw it at that time, the most pressing issue facing us as a people, and as I say a people, all of us, was the issue of race. That's what he saw at that moment. But he did go beyond that. And because we lost him, we, we missed his leadership in so many other critical issues that we've had to face. Dr. Wiley? Always mindful of the fact that a lot of us don't necessarily have the insights that we would like to have on some of these leaders that have been at a distance. So two things. There's a PBS movie that came out years ago called The Meeting. Fascinating meeting, a hypothetical meeting between Malcolm and Martin a little bit before Malcolm was killed. And there's a scene in it where Malcolm says to Martin, they're arguing about their different agendas, and Malcolm says to Martin, you don't get it. They have to deal with you, because if they don't, they'll deal with me. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. profound. And then mm -hmm. in our contemporary times, there's a show, a cartoon strip that became a show called uh, Boondocks. Aaron Magruder uh, had a comic strip, and it became a hit TV show. It shows late at night, because it's quite profane. But the bottom line is, there's, there's two boys being raised by their grandfather in suburbia, in white suburbia. 
And uh, they have an episode where Dr. King wasn't assassinated. He was wounded and put in a coma. He wakes up 32 years later and walks around America and sees that his image has been co-opted, his voice has been co-opted, and he's very, very upset with what he sees. If you have some time, you can see this on YouTube. Google it. It's an amazing episode. What would Dr. King think of if he were alive today? If he had survived, what would his dream be like? One last mm -hmm. question, uh, Carl McCall. We have mm -hmm. one minute here. But I wondered, uh, how does the election of an African-American to the presidency of the United States figure in what you think we owe to Dr. King? Well, there's no question. I think Barack Obama, just as uh, Dr. Wiley and I would say, we are here because of Dr. King. And Barack Obama has said publicly that he is where he is because of Dr. King. So there's no question that he was such a transformational leader and made so many things happen because of his courage and because of his willingness to speak out about what he thought was the major issue at that particular time. And we all, and black folks and white folks and other folks, owe him a great debt because of the positions he took and his leadership and, 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 and his own vision of what America should be. Let's give a hand to our two wonderful participants. You're listening to The Power of Words, a co-production of WAMC and the New York State Archives Partnership Trust. I'm Alan Shartak. We're here with Dr. J.W. Wiley, director of the Center for Diversity, Pluralism, and Inclusion at the State University of New York, Plattsburgh, and a lecturer in philosophy and interdisciplinary studies. Also joining us today is SUNY Board of Trustees member, former New York State Comptroller, Senator, and much more, H. Carl McCall, who, now that we've set the scene, is ready to deliver Dr. Martin Luther King's Jr.'s I Have a Dream speech. Let's listen. I am happy to join with you today in what will go down in history as the greatest demonstration for freedom in the history of our nation. Five score years ago, a great American in whose symbolic shadow we stand today signed the Emancipation Proclamation. That momentous decree came as a great beacon light of hope to millions of Negro slaves who had been seared in the flames of withering injustice it came as a joyous daybreak to end the long night of their captivity. But 100 years later, the Negro still is not free. 100 years later, the life of the Negro is still sadly crippled by the manacles of segregation and the chains of discrimination. 100 years later, the Negro lives on a lonely island of poverty in the midst of a vast ocean of material prosperity. 100 years later, the Negro is still languished in the corners of American society and finds himself in exile in his own land. And so we've come here today to dramatize a shameful condition. In a sense, we've come to our nation's capital to cash a check. When the architects of our republic wrote the magnificent words of the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence, they were signing a promissory note to which every American was to fall heir. This note was a promise that all men, yes, black men as well as white men, would be guaranteed the unalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. It's obvious today 
that America has defaulted on this promissory note insofar as her citizens of color are concerned. Instead of honoring this sacred obligation, America has given the Negro people a bad check, a check which has come back marked insufficient funds. But we refuse to believe that the bank of justice is bankrupt. We refuse to believe that there are insufficient funds in the great vaults of opportunity of this nation. And so we've come to cash this check, a check that will give us upon demand the riches of freedom and the security of justice. We have also come to this hallowed spot to remind America of the fierce urgency of now. This is no time to engage in the luxury of cooling off or to take the tranquilizing drug of gradualism. Now is the time to make real the promises of democracy. Now is the time to rise from the dark and desolate valley of segregation to the sunlit path of racial justice. Now is the time to lift our nation from the quicksands of racial injustice to the solid rock of brotherhood. Now is the time to make justice a reality for all of God's children. It would be fatal for the nation to overlook the urgency of the moment. The sweltering summer of the Negro's legitimate discontent will not pass until there is an invigorating autumn of freedom and equality. 1963 is not an end, but a beginning. And those who hope that the Negro needed to blow off steam and will now be content will have a rude awakening if the nation returns to business as usual. And there will be neither rest nor tranquility in America until the Negro is granted his citizenship rights. The whirlwinds of revolt will continue to shake the foundations of our nation until the bright day of justice emerges. But there is something that I must say to my people who stand on the warm threshold which leads into the palace of justice in the process of gaining our rightful place. We must not be guilty of wrongful deeds. Let us not seek to satisfy our thirst for freedom by drinking from the cup of bitterness and hatred. We must forever conduct our struggle on the high plane of dignity and discipline. We must not allow our creative protests to degenerate into physical violence. Again and again, we must rise to the majestic heights of meeting physical force with soul force. The marvelous new militancy, which has engulfed the Negro community, must not lead to a distrust of all white people. For many of our white brothers, as evidenced by their presence here today, have come to realize that their destiny is tied up with our destiny. And they have come to realize that their freedom is inextricably bound to our freedom. We cannot walk alone. And as we walk, we must make the pledge that we shall always march forward. We cannot turn back. There are those who are asking the devotees of civil rights, when will you be satisfied? We can never be satisfied. 
As long as the Negro is the victim of the unspeakable horrors of police brutality, we can never be satisfied as long as our bodies, heavy with the fatigue of travel, cannot gain lodging in the motels of the highways and the hotels of the cities. We cannot be satisfied as long as the Negro's basic mobility is from a smaller ghetto to a larger one. We can never be satisfied as long as our children are stripped of their selfhood and robbed of their dignity by signs stating for whites only. We cannot be satisfied as long as a Negro in Mississippi cannot vote and a Negro in New York believes he has nothing for which to vote. No, no, we are not satisfied. And we will not be satisfied until justice rolls down like waters and righteousness like a mighty stream. I am not unmindful that some of you have come here out of great trials and tribulations. Some of you have come fresh from narrow jail cells, and some of you have come from areas where your quest for freedom left you battered by the storms of persecution and staggered by the winds of police brutality. You have been the veterans of creative suffering. Continue to work with the faith that unearned suffering is redemptive. Go back to Mississippi. Go back to Alabama. Go back to South Carolina. Go back to Georgia. Go back to Louisiana. Go back to the slums and ghettos of our northern cities, knowing that something of this situation can and will be changed. Let us not wallow in the valley of despair. I say to you today, my friends, and so even though we face the difficulties of today and tomorrow, I still have a dream. It's a dream deeply rooted in the American dream. I have a dream that one day this nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of the creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal. I have a dream that one day on the red hills of Georgia, the sons of former slaves and the sons of former slave owners will be able to sit down together at the table of brotherhood. I have a dream that one day, even the state of Mississippi, a state sweltering with the heat of injustice, sweltering with the heat of oppression, will be transformed into an oasis of freedom and justice. I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. I have a dream today. I have a dream that one day down in Alabama, with its vicious racist, with its governor having his lips dripping with the words of interposition and nullification, one day right there in Alabama, little black boys and black girls will be able to join hands with little white boys and white girls as sisters and brothers. I have a dream today. I have a dream that one day every valley shall be exalted and every hill and mountain shall be made low. The rough places will be made plain and the crooked places will be made straight and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. This is our hope and this is the faith that I go back to the South with, with this faith, we will be able to hew out of the mountain of despair a stone of hope. With this faith, we will be able to transform 
the jangling discords of our nation into a beautiful symphony of brotherhood. With this faith, we'll be able to work together, to pray together, to struggle together, to go to jail together, to stand up for freedom together, knowing that we will be free one day. And this will be the day, this will be the day when all God's children, we will be able to sing with new meaning, my country tis of thee, sweet land of liberty, of thee I sing, land where my fathers died, land of the pilgrim's pride, from every mountainside let freedom ring. And if America is to be a great nation, this must be true. And so let freedom ring from the prodigious hilltops of New Hampshire. Let freedom ring from the mighty mountains of New York. Let freedom ring from the heightening Alleghenies of Pennsylvania. Let freedom ring from the snow-capped Rockies of Colorado. Let freedom ring from the curvaceous slopes of California. But not only that. Let freedom ring from Stone Mountain of Georgia. Let freedom ring from Lookout Mountain of Tennessee. Let freedom ring from every hill and molehill of Mississippi, from every mountain top. Let freedom ring. And when this happens, when we allow freedom to ring, when we let it ring from every village and every hamlet, from every state and every city, we will be able to speed up that day when all of God's children, black men and white men, Jews and Gentiles, Protestants and Catholics, will be able to join hands and sing the words of the old Negro spiritual, free at last, free at last. Thank God Almighty, we are free at last. was H. Carl McCall delivering Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s I Have a Dream speech delivered on August 28, 1963 at the Lincoln Memorial in Washington, D.C. I'm Alan Chartok, and you're listening to a very special Power of Words live at the Linda Norris Auditorium in the WAMC Performing Arts Studio in Albany, New York. Also on the program with us today is Dr. J.W. Wiley, Director of the Center for Diversity, Pluralism, and Inclusion at the State University of New York, Plattsburgh, and a lecturer in philosophy and interdisciplinary studies. Dr. Wiley, as you listen to this speech, do any historical figures jump into your mind? Man, I got so many things racing through my mind right now. I'm looking for my black gloves, 68 Olympics. You just want to drop the head, you know. No, you know, um, there's so many references there, and I just picked up on another one. I, I was uh, going back doing a lot of research for this, and as you said, Lookout Mountain, mm -hmm. it connected me to the Scottsboro case because uh, the Scottsboro Nine, that incident that went down with the accusations of rape of those nine young black men with two young white women, that whole incident came down around Lookout Tunnel. Mm -hmm. So I didn't realize that until, you know, hearing it again, and the Lookout Mountain reference, that's, that's powerful. Also, there's, there's a lot of other references there that are intriguing, like he goes through the Bible a lot. There's a mm -hmm. Shakespeare reference there. He covered a lot of territory in that yeah, speech. Yeah. But the thing that really jumped out in my head also was with Brown and the Board of Education, when they put in that 
are in that decision with all deliberate speed, that language. Uh, when, when King said, when Dr. King said, the tranquilizing drug of gradualism, I believe that was a reference to that all deliberate speed reference that was made in, in the decision that Brown versus Board of Education needed to be implemented. What I'm talking about is they put a caveat in there with all deliberate speed. What does that mean? I mean, that's like the Civil Rights Act that took place in the 1800s with all deliberate speed. We had to do it again in 1964. So those are the first observations I had about it. Colonel Cole? Well, it really shows you what this is all about, the power of words. There was so many powerful references here. I particularly like the one where he admonished his own people to say, uh, you know, we, we've got to do this right. We can't just be rowdy about this. Uh, we've got to be disciplined. Um, we, we've got to put aside, you know, our, our emotions and realize what we're up against. And I think that was really very, very important and difficult because, as you remember, it's really interesting, the background of some of this, there was some real discussion going on and some negotiating about who was going to speak mm -hmm. and what they were going to say. And as you remember, the civil rights movement as initiated by Dr. King and some ministers was pretty much uh, taken over by students, uh, people who sat in at the lunch counters and did some other things, and particularly this group called SNCC, Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. And there were some real tensions between the ta about the tactics of the SCLC, Dr. King's group, and SNCC. And, and before they went up on the stage, they negotiated with John Lewis, now the congressman from Atlanta, Georgia, who was representing SNCC and had a, a speech that was a little more militant, yeah. that was a little more harsh. And they had to negotiate with, with John Lewis to, to, to change the tone of that speech. And that was a very difficult thing to do, but King thought it was important Again, because he felt that there were people who need to be, needed to be reassured, needed to be brought along, needed to be prodded. He wasn't backing off. He made it clear that some of these people were, you know, he talks about the racism of the governor of Alabama. And he made it clear that uh, even though there were people who were, were oppressing black folks, you just couldn't blame all white folks for that. And you, you had to, you had to, understand that there are some, as he said, the people who are here with us today. I thought that was a very difficult but important statement that, that King made. So, so did either of you hear either Mahatma Gandhi or later on Nelson Mandela, you know, in the speech um, in terms of, you know, the, the nonviolent aspect of this? Yeah. Well, for me, I didn't hear that as much in this speech as, I, as you hear it in a letter from a Birmingham jail. But going back to some of the behind the scenes stuff, it's pretty fascinating though because the NAACP, Roy Wilkins, the president then, and Adam Clayton Powell, his right hand man, they were doing a lot of damage to Bayard Rustin. Mm -hmm. So basically he, he had the mic for a moment, you can see video footage of it, but in general, he was voiceless there. Okay, and he's the one who taught Martin Luther King the nonviolent principles. He's the one who taught him that. Sure. If you, yeah. if you, he's the one who went uh, to uh, India in 1948 and learned those principles, came back and uh, when Dr. King and they were doing the bus boycott and, and they were trying to figure out how to do this, they brought Bayard in from some other organizations. They brought Bayard in after he had already had a little drama because I think it was in 1953 in California where 
he had a, a sex conviction, sexual perversion is what they called it. So he, he had been, I would imagine, gay his whole life. Mm -hmm. But he was outed for that reason. He lost a job with FOR, I don't know what the acronym unpacks for, and he still was able to find work, and King's organization brought him in, but they knew what they were doing. They knew they were bringing in a gay male who could jeopardize their whole initiative if the word got out, because it was that problematic. That's right. and, he st and I think to his credit, although you know he might not have said all this publicly, certainly wasn't anything in, in his speech, but the fact is that he stayed with Bayard Rustin, yeah, in spite of the fact that particularly Adam Clayton Powell wrote him a letter mm -hmm. and said to him, uh, look, Martin, if you want the support from me and other political people, and particularly the support of people in the black Baptist church, you got to get rid of that gay guy. I mean, he was very clear about that. And Martin valued uh, by it and valued his skills, and therefore he stayed with him and kept him right to the very end. And uh, again, it wasn't a public, I don't think he ever publicly said anything about that, but privately. He had that commitment to this gay man who was very clear about, about his sexual orientation. Dr. Wiley? Yeah, and there was some other pieces to that, too. Strom Thurmond got a picture. I don't know if you got it from the FBI, but Strom Thurmond had a picture of Martin with a bath towel around him or something like that, and, and Baird was dressed, mm -hmm. and they threatened to use that, to go public with that. Strom Thurmond threatened it, and then mm -hmm. Adam Clayton Powell also got access to the picture and, and made the exact same threats. So there was a lot of pressure for them to distance themselves from Baird Rustin. A lot. And to Martin's credit, I totally agree with you. They stayed the course. And again, part of that, too, had to do with the fact that there were certain political people, that, you know, they saw Martin was still kind of an outsider. And there was still other more established African-American black organizations at the time, the NAACP, the Urban League. And here comes this new guy, the new guy on the block getting all this attention. So there were some real tensions, but he went out of his way to embrace them and bring them in. You know, the NAACP was there, Roy Wilkins was there, Whitney Young was there. So he didn't want to threaten these other organizations, but embraced them and brought them into the movement, and that strengthened the movement. Every time I see the films, which are not, by the way, easily accessible, mm -hmm. do you want to talk about that a little bit, <laughs> Dr. Wiley? Well, you're talking about the actual video footage? Yeah. Yeah, from what I understand, to make this happen, but we couldn't make it happen using the actual footage because that was an arm and a leg. I don't know the exact amount, but it was quite expensive. So to make it happen, uh, we had to find a different avenue, which is why the renowned H. Carl McCall is the one who actually did that speech for us. And we still had to pay a little bit of change for that until finally, in the 11th hour, we were able to make it happen at a reasonable fee. Yep. Let me ask you, though, if I remember looking at the videos or, or films, King was surrounded by a whole host of different kinds of people, some of whom looked like, don't mess with this man. We're sort of a Praetorian guard here. I would hope so. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That brother was a marked man. Yeah, I would hope so. Did you feel in the speech that he indicated that, that he was a marked man? I didn't feel it in that speech, but I know a little bit before he was murdered, he said some things along those lines, yeah. But I didn't get that sentiment in that speech. Cool. No, but I, I think throughout his life, he always knew that he was marked and that he would be a target, particularly when he traveled in the South. He knew clearly that there were people out to get, and he knew that the people he was dealing with their way of dealing with you was to get rid of you. I mean, there was no question about that. 
And that's true. Remember the night before he, you know, his famous speech says, you know, we're going to get to the promised land. I may not be with you, and uh, you might get there without me. I, you know, I think that was clearly always very much in his mind. Professor? Something that was interesting also, though, with Baird Rustin being the one who mentored him about nonviolence, W.B. Du Bois uh, wrote an article in 1943 called Doubts Gandhi's Plan, and he was prophesizing then that he thought that what we would need in this country would be someone who would rise up and implement the kind of things that, that Gandhi was doing. Then a little bit later in 1957, he wrote Gandhi and the American Negroes, another essay, and in this one, he actually lauded Martin Luther King as potentially being the one to you know, make this happen. He was lauding him. But then Du Bois was rather cantankerous. And again, in 1857, Du Bois was 89. So he never lost his edge because uh, he ended up writing another speech. I think it's, Will the Great Gandhi Live Again? Same year, 1957. And in this one, he took Dr. King to task because he said the difference between Gandhi and Dr. King was that Dr. King didn't have an economic plan to go along with his nonviolent movement, so he was going to, um, quite a few problems along those lines. But the last little thing is that a little tidbit that you might be interested in, Bayard Rustin challenged him that he had to remove armed guards from his family if he was going to practice nonviolence, because at first he had his family guarded, and Bayard challenged him about that. And so even though his life was in danger throughout this whole period, he didn't have armed guards for his family. Mrs. King certainly has suggested that the person who was arrested and convicted uh, mm -hmm. for this didn't do it. Do either of you have any sort of postscript ideas on who did? Well, first of all, there's no one person responsible for this. It was clear that whoever pulled the trigger, whether it was the person who was ultimately convicted or not, was part of an organization I mean, with support from a number of different places. So I think that uh, Mrs. King was quite right in terms of pointing out that I think what she was really saying is that we've got to find out who all of the people were who were part of this terrible plot to assassinate her husband. Doctor? I have no takes on that at all, except that whoever pulled the trigger, there were probably three or four other people that had him in his sights at the exact yeah. same time. What was the martyrdom factor in terms of how we celebrate Dr. King? Well, that's, that's a good point. I think that it's just like Malcolm X, it's just like John Kennedy, when heroes leave us quickly, when they leave us at the point when we need the most, that brings about all kinds of incredible sentiments. I would prefer to have them with us than to have to have these sentiments about what a great loss it was. But he clearly, like other people who were assassinated, were people who were willing to put their life on the line knowing that that was certainly a possibility as a result of their activity. Dr. Wiley? You know, I say often to uh, people, like I'm from a relatively small town now, Plattsburgh, and I say often, there are no saints in Plattsburgh. We have saints and sinners. Everybody does something that they're ashamed of and wish that they could do differently. That's what life is. And so having said that, when Malcolm died, Malcolm was painted as a, as a demigod. And history has revised Malcolm and given people a very different take on Malcolm. The world has changed, too, so you can appreciate him more. And so Martin's martyrdom, when he died, Martin was pretty much a saint for a lot of us. And unfortunately, when he died, things came out that made him look a little more mortal. And uh, in case you don't know, you know, rumors of affairs and things like that. So I think if you have 
too much of a halo, people will find a way to tarnish it. And if you don't have enough of a halo, people will find a way to celebrate those good things that you brought. That's just kind of how we roll. So you draw a parallel between uh, Martin Luther King and John Kennedy in terms of their martyrdom because neither yeah. of them were perfect men. No, neither one of them were perfect men. But there are none. Yeah. <laughs> I've heard often that the last perfect man was nailed to the cross. Uh, that's right. That's right. And, and they'll talk about him bad, too. <laughs> yeah. So when we celebrate this concept of Martin Luther King, we get somebody who is incredibly important to the country and to a lot of people. Is that a good thing, or is it, in fact, misplaced? It's a necessary thing. It's a wonderful thing that there are people who end up in the right place at the right time. I've always just marveled at the fact of the destiny here, that it just so happened that when Rosa Parks decided she was not going to get up out of that seat and got arrested, it just so happened that this man was the pastor of the Dexter Avenue Baptist Church. This man with a PhD, with a great family tradition of ministry, he just happened to be in that city at that time to pick up on what Rosa Parks started and to carry it on to this great movement. This always says to me that there's something else working here, and this is maybe my clerical, my I was just going to say that. You're a theologian. Yeah, and it just, uh, you know, why are certain people placed in certain places at a particular time to carry out a particular mission? And sometimes, you know, they're not here for the whole mission, but they certainly get things started in an incredible way. Doctor? Wow. I don't want to burst anybody's bubble, but from what I understand, Rosa Parks, that was not an accident. Rosa Parks was a trained, a well-trained freedom fighter. That's not the language I want to use, but I can't think of the word right now. But she had been trained, not necessarily in nonviolence, but in protest. She had been trained in it. So when she got on that bus, she had a mission. She was almost like licking her chops, hoping that they would you know, do that so that she could, she could start something. So I agree totally with you about the timing of Dr. King being in the mix, totally. But Rosa was looking to pick a fight. Rosa had a little gangster in her. That's <laughs> true. Okay, so, so relate that to Dr. King, to what Carl said about Dr. King. Oh, no, I, I totally agree with Carl. Dr. King, the timing of Dr. Mm -hmm. King being in the mix, mm -hmm. that's a great thing. That's mm -hmm. what happens sometimes, yeah. I mean, the only parallel I can draw to that is the fact that John Brown, Henry David Thoreau, William Lloyd Garrison, Ralph Waldo Emerson, Frederick Douglass, Katie Stanton, they were all in the mix at the same time, too. Sometimes you just luck up and all the players are ready to roll. <laughs> I can say that a different way if you'd like. Well, since we have four minutes left, why don't you do that? <laughs> so is there something to be said about the fact that Martin Luther King is, without question, the most famous black man who has emerged from American history. I would say that he is, and I guess what I would say, as much as that is the case, Carl, help me with this, or mm -hmm. because I'm not positive about it, but in 1980, I think that's when we tried to get the bill passed to have Dr. King's holiday. Mm -hmm. And from what I understand, the president at that time, Ronald Reagan, so maybe it was, yeah, 80 or 84, Ronald Reagan didn't want to sign the bill. He signed it, but he signed it begrudgingly. In other states, in the, particularly Arizona and some other states, didn't even recognize the holiday. He is uh, the most famous man, but I think he would say that he was famous and he was able to do what he did. He was also clear about the fact that 
you know, he stood on others' shoulders, yes. uh, from whether it was Du Bois or others, yes. that there were other people who created the atmosphere and gave him the kind of support that, that allowed him to be what he was. And, uh, and I think, again, that says something about him. Uh, he was a man who thought that he had a destiny, but he thought that he was going to do what he could do because he was carrying on a great tradition from within the African-American community about people who didn't get the attention that he got. Even people who were other members of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, they did some incredible things in their own way, in their own communities. But he, he was the person who happened to get the attention, and this is what happens in history. There are people who are there and get a certain amount of attention, and we know them, and we know their names, and we have holidays named for them, and you know, he's the only person who uh, has a holiday name for him who didn't start a war or didn't lead a nation at war. I mean, he was, he was very unique. I guess I'll say there's two things. I've forgotten about this completely, and I don't know it, but when I was younger, I wrote a poem called Coach King, and I completely forgot about that till right now, and it was a tribute to him as, you know, just the amazing person that he was, but more so, he, and you made this point earlier, Carl, with that last speech he gave before he died, he knew he was a marked man. So a tribute to his greatness is the fact that he constantly went out there, got up to a mic, and that he knew there was no way with the message he was pushing that he was going to live. And the fact that he continued to go out and live knowing he was destined to die is the most amazing thing about his legacy. Last thoughts, either of you? Well, the last thought is, first of all, I want to pay tribute to you, Alan, for providing this kind of forum, this opportunity to talk about the power of words and to talk about the life of a man who had certainly a gift in terms of crafting words, but that those words have made such a tremendous impact and have really changed the destiny of, of this nation. So I just uh, want to thank you for giving me and professor and others an opportunity to participate in this and we go away convinced that words are powerful therefore we should be careful how we use them and we should take every opportunity to use them in a way that will bring about real change. Professor? I'm honored to be in this conversation. Alan I appreciate the opportunity. Carl it was a pleasure to meet you and Bob Bullock was very inv much involved for me. You know to be honest with you if you can't already detect it i I have so much respect for Martin, but I'm in the Malcolm camp. I'm a Malcolm X man. And I'm also a W.B. Du Bois man. So this was a good exercise for me. This was a good exercise for me to have a better appreciation for Dr. King. And um, other than all the platitudes that I could extend, I'm just always about the search, the path of knowledge. And this was just another opportunity for me to own some. So thank you very much. Let's have a hand for both of you. Unfortunately, we are out of time. I want to thank our distinguished guests who are both phenomenal, and I mean that. SUNY Board of Trustees member, former controller, state senator, UM ambassador, and much more, H. Carl McCall and Dr. J. W. Wiley, director of the Center for Diversity, Pluralism, and Inclusion at the State University of New York, Plattsburgh. Thank you both so much. Also, to our wonderful producer, he does all the work, David Gustina, our engineer, Adam Claremont, the Martin Luther King Jr. family for their permission to reenact the speech. Be sure to join us the next time for another discussion about a great political speech on the power of words. 
You've been listening to Dr. Alan Chartok, President and CEO of WAMC Northeast Public Radio and Professor Emeritus at the University at Albany. For more information on WAMC's In Conversation with Alan series or to order a physical copy, call 1-800-323-9262 or subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or on the Google Play Store.